Welcome to the Casey Adams Show. Today, I am joined by my good friend, Blake Wynn, the co-founder of Enclave and Key. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Blake. Man, thanks for having me. First ever episode. I'm excited. We are here at the, the Blue Wire studio. Thank you so much for coming out. Um, I'm in town in Vegas, where you are from, and I'm super glad that we can make it happen. Me too, man. And this is, the, without a doubt, the most beautiful studio. <laughs> this is such a treat. Thank you for having me. Of course. So... Man, let's get right into it. I mean, we've—I feel like we've known each other for over a year now, just on social media, and then recently we really got to know each other when we had dinner. And just, I'm so not only amazed by your story, but how you've been able to build relationships and build this incredible company, Enclave and Key. So, for the people that don't know what Enclave and Key is, I'd love for you to give a background on what you've built. So, Enclave and Key, at the end of the day, is just the bridge and gap between brands and, in often cases, celebrities. And those celebrities were originally just pro athletes. The company started uh, three years ago. It was called B-Win Sports, LLC. And uh, the whole purpose of the company was to help the players who were on the trajectory to be part of the statistic of the 86% of NFL players that are broke within 36 months of retiring helping guys like that make some money off the field because their agents didn't have a rooting interest in doing that. Um, they weren't necessarily able to do it for themselves. And at the time, I was a YouTuber. So I had a lot of the brand contacts that were necessary to make that happen. So um, for about a year and a half, that was the business. And then it transitioned to, well, now we have such a large uh, pool of influencers to work with, not even just athletes, but now it was you know, TikTokers and YouTubers and that whole uh, you know, realm of social media. It was, well, let's just go to the brands and say, hey, if you want to work with... 200 of the world's most influential people. We can help you do that. And so now our positioning is very much so, uh, if, you've, if you're a brand and you've got a story to tell, we have the world's best storytellers to help you do that. I love that. Speaking of being a, a YouTuber, I know just your past life, <laughs> I guess you could say, you've had an incredible YouTube presence, sneaker collection, I should say the least. <laughs> when did that start? When did you start you know, collecting sneakers, building a brand on YouTube? Because I know when we talked about it at dinner, like that was such an important part of your journey before Enclave and Key, which has been an incredible journey to watch. But when did you get into sneaker collecting? So uh, I didn't, uh, you know, sneaker collecting was something that kind of happened as a byproduct of reselling sneakers, which, you know, uh, looked a lot different 10 years ago. I started in yeah. 2011. I was 11 years old at the time. Uh, I walked into an Adidas outlet. I saw a pair of shoes for $19.99 that said suggested retail $199.99. And for some reason, it triggered in my head that, hey, these are probably worth more than 20 bucks. So I <laughs> bought two pairs of them. I put them on my eBay. Next day, they both sold for $110 each. And it, I just got so fascinated by the concept of essentially arbitrage at 11 years old. Yep. So did that for about five years. And in order to grow that business, that was actually why uh, I started the YouTube. I wanted to market it, so I reached out to uh, Nice Kicks and Sneaker Watch and Kais Omar and all these people that I had following in that space at the time. Hey, how much would it be to promote my eBay store? Keep in mind, there's no StockX at this point. This is, 20, <laughs> this is late 2015. There's no StockX. Yep. That was 2016. There may have been GOAT, but it was nothing if it was. Um, and so eBay was it. And so um, they hit me with rates that they later went on to hit these brands with, except I wasn't a brand. I was a 15, 16-year-old yeah. kid in high school still, so I was like, I'm going to do this myself. <laughs> and so I started the YouTube. Uh, 45 days later, I hit 10,000 subscribers. Six months after that, I hit 100,000. And very quickly, it went from, oh, let me have YouTube uh, as, an, as, as help to resell sneakers. It very quickly became, oh, shoot, there's this whole influencer thing, right? Because you yeah. got to think, this same time is when uh, uh, 
Jake and Logan Paul were doing the music videos back and forth, and Team 10 was becoming a thing, and uh, SneakerCon was becoming really, really popular amongst YouTubers. So uh, I was definitely a beneficiary of, of just really the perfect timing. I love that. How did you continue to maintain that over time when it comes to doing brand deals, working with companies as an influencer yourself, also as someone that's selling sneakers? I know you've told me some incredible stories just about the companies that you've been able to work with and even get ownership in at an early stage through being an influencer. And I think you know, that's an important conversation nowadays where you know, at, at Media Kits, we're talking to creators about the creator economy and how they can monetize. And I think it's, it's fluctuated so much over the past decade that you know, the deals that you were doing back then with like, let's say early StockX or whatever it right. may have been are different than the deals that are maybe being done now. So I'd love for you to dive into that. Well, you know, at the end of the day, every influencer, and this is especially true for social media influencers, different than athletes, is that they're really their own micro business, whether they like to acknowledge that or not, right? Like you as an individual have a following and that following is essentially your clientele or consumer base. And then, you know, there's the standard, let's, you know, do merchandise, let's go on tour, let's do all these things. But then there's a, you know, the desire to work with brands and get brands backing your small brand. Like imagine yep. being a small business and having, uh, you know, let's say you were a small sneaker seller and Nike endorsed your business. Well, you might be a sneaker seller, but all of a sudden one of the biggest brands in the world who in theory should be your biggest competition, but they're so much larger than you, you don't even look at it that way, is now actually endorsing you, right? Yep. Like that's a lot of the positioning for brand deals. It's like these companies that would otherwise be competition that are essentially using their audience to become part of their clientele because they are competitors, right? Um, and so it's interesting because a lot of influencers, I think, love to very, very, very quickly outsource the deal making. And to me, the deal making was the reason I wanted to be an influencer. It gave yeah. me something to bring to the table that had value to whoever I was sitting across from. Um, most influencers, they hire a manager. Let's say they're the best manager in the world, so be it. Uh, that person's job is to get them deals, and they're very caught up in their content, their editing, their video, all those things. I was the complete opposite. I hired a videographer, I hired an editor, and I was unwilling at all costs to take a manager because that's what I got a kick out of. And so uh, for me, I was always uh, looking for the next fun deal to kind of structure because, uh, to be honest, I think that's probably the larger, like the largest skill set I have is the ability to negotiate. Love that. What, what have you seen... Um, through working with athletes on and off the field. I mean, I think nowadays with now college athletes being able to monetize, it just opened up an entire new um, genre of influencers, I guess you could say. So how do you look at monetizing athletes and how do you, you know, bring more value to that? You said 86% of athletes that, you know, become broke three years after they stop playing the league. Like, how are you continuing to bring value to these athletes and what is the strategy um, to helping these athletes monetize? So in a sense, we're almost coming in as a secondary manager, except we're, we're just telling them, look, we're not exclusive, we're just bringing you offers, right? Yep. Now, the positioning is different on, an, in, uh, on a completely individual basis. Like for NIL guys, I have certain conversations with guys where I'm like, look, here's the reality. Like you're an influencer now, you're on a big time college team, you guys are in the top 25, brands are busting your door down let's take these deals because you're, you're not going to go pro. You're not going to go pro. So you may as well uh, capitalize on the exposure you have right now as an influencer, NIL athlete, whatever you want to call it, uh, because you know, you're going to go on in life to go be you know, an accountant or a real estate agent or whatever you end up doing, but it's not going to be playing pro. Yeah. If you're going to be a pro, 
I tell people, take the deals that only apply to college athletes. Like I w- Do not go get your sneaker deal right now, your Nike deal, your water deal, your Beats headphones deal. There's no, <laughs> there's no point because yep. you're going to get 10x more as soon as you enter the draft and get signed by a team or whatever it may be. So there's a lot of strategy there in, in terms of what to take versus what not to. But it's also challenging because ju- you can tell an 18-year-old who's going to go number three in the NFL draft, like, hey, they're only three years away from making 40, 50 million bucks. Like, <laughs> but they're, right then and there, they might have $100 in their checking account. You know, so they're like, well, this brand's offering me 1000 bucks. I'm just going to take it. And if the brand's able to get away with that, huge win for the brand. Yep. But to the player, I'm like, look, like probably not your best bet, you know? Totally. How have you guys transitioned over the years from, you know, since you started it working with different athletes? Like how have not only the deals changed, but how have you grown when it comes to deal making and what has changed in the industry now with the NIL component? The NIL component for us at least hasn't been as dramatic of a change as you might think, just because we're not being super aggressive on the NIL side. We have about 12 NIL guys that we work with. All 12 of them are going to be professional athletes one day, and that's kind of our positioning is, you know, at this point in time, because we represent the brand, I do want to get some really good college guys in early with these brands where these brands can end up paying, you know, cents on the dollar for the value that they're going to end up getting long term. And at the same time, the guy is able to get some income short term. And so on the NIL front, uh, it's really just a battle uh, of making sure that the fit is right and that it doesn't hurt their ability to do anything long term. Separate from that, I think it's great for them to you know be able to earn some money. Now, going back to our positioning, uh, it's changed so so much and it changes so frequently. And what I mean by that is, is like every month, all of a sudden, it's like we'll be doing something with a brand, and they'll say to me, you know, we need to increase our impressions on this but then the next month it's like well we have a black friday thing we just want website traffic and then it's this and it's this and it's this and you have to be able to juggle that flip of the messaging of the content the creative and all that except you got to remember we're not dealing with influencers right like if i said that to you you understand so much about how to create content how it works that would be no problem for you but explaining that to a football player is a little different combined with their schedules combined with their uh you know like for example, even let's say it's a product and they need the product in their hand. Well, they might not be home for three weeks straight. You know what I mean? Like yep. there's, there's there's complications there that are so nuanced that uh, it's incredibly important for us to pick brand partners who understand those things and are not only not scared of those things, but they're like, no, we like that kind of flexibility of it. You know? Totally. I, I want to transition a bit. I, I think just talking about entrepreneurship as a whole, I know you said you got into the reselling of sneakers at 11 years old. Where did this drive come from for you early on? And how have you maintained that over time when it comes to what motivates you? I think a lot of it you're born with. I've always been the kind of person that says, like, I I truly do believe that you're born with an entrepreneurial tendency because you have a desire to live in a way that most normal people would would never want to live. It's really (laughs) uncomfortable when you get a close look at it. Um, And so I think I was born with it, but I was also... You know, exposed to it a lot at a very young age. We're sitting here in Blue Wire Studios in the Wynn Hotel, which my uncle started. And so at a very, very early age, seeing him do it, like I probably didn't even understand what he was doing, but <laughs> I was just exposed to it, like literally yeah. in the room. And then uh, my parents got divorced in 2008. And around 2010, uh, as my mom and I are kind of trying to figure out what's, you know, what's the next step of life for us, if you will, uh, I ended up being raised primarily by my uh, single mom. Uh, she learned how to do options trading. And I kind of fell into the sneaker thing. And yep. so from that moment on, 
I've never known anything besides entrepreneurship. I never had a summer job mowing lawns or working somewhere or doing anything like that. I've worked for myself since I was 11 years old. I've paid taxes as a sole proprietor, owner of an LLC since I was 12. Uh, and that's all I've really ever known. I love that. And, and when you talk about like mentorship and, and growing up with it, you know, when you talk about your uncle, Steve Wynn, what would you say you've learned from him overall, but also just the mentors in your life that have instilled entrepreneurship in you from early age? Because, I mean, you said, you know, you, you didn't really see maybe what he was doing there, but the values and what rubbed off on you, whether that's his grit, um, his, you know, his deal mentality, whatever it may be. Just, I'd love to know, like, what you learn through spending time with him and what's been instilled in you. So inherently, you learn that uh, days are not eight hours long. You know, a lot of people, a, a lot of people look at days as eight hours long and then they got their time. You know, Steve was eight to eight a.m. to 10 p.m. for 50, 60 years. You know, that's all I knew. It's like business dinners. But it's not to say that you're sitting at a desk in a cubicle for 19 hours. It, you know, you don't have to be unrealistic. But, you know, you go to dinner and it's with a client or with a friend of the business or whatever it may be. And so you see those things happen and you realize that being an entrepreneur is a lifestyle, not a career choice. And in accepting that lifestyle, your goal has to be to learn and to get better as quickly as possible. So as I got older, I would then go back to my uncle and seek advice that I could understand because I was older. And he would explain to me, like, for example, the value of any enterprise is its ability to create a culture. Because if you don't create a culture, then that thing cannot live on without you, right? And so there's thoughts like that that have dramatically impacted my ability to lead my team. You know, we have about uh, 30 people on our staff counting our contractors and everything like that and uh, as much as I can maybe do as many deals as I can maybe make if they're not done properly the whole thing falls apart and so uh, I've taken a pretty unique approach to building the business in that respect but uh, a lot of it is because that's what I've you know more or less been coached and advised <laughs> to do by people yeah. around me who I trust not just and not just my uncle by any means you know I have a, a number of uh, mentors one of whom is going to be on your show uh, next, Justin Blau, <laughs> yes. um, you know, he convinced me to drop out of college. It's like, it's people who I trust, who I know. Let's talk about that. He, con he convinced you to it. drop out of college. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's, a, what, like, what, that's an important thing to say. <laughs> he, uh, so uh, we were in New York City. I was at Fordham University at the time. Okay. Uh, I lived a couple blocks away from this place called the Aviary. It's a beautiful bar, but they also have a speakeasy and Justin loves speakeasies. He likes the ability to get all these different kinds of drinks and have smoke and different stuff come out of it. So he said, let's go get a drink. So we're getting a drink and it's about 9 p.m. At 2 a.m., I stand up and I have a different outlook on life. <laughs> I went there to have a drink. I went there to have a drink because I, you know, I didn't have homework or whatever it may be. And I left there thinking, okay, well, I'm done with school. What, what was it that he spoke to you about? <laughs> uh, so, uh, Justin, if I, I might be wrong on the semester, but I want to say he dropped out the second semester of his junior year. Okay. I was in the very end of my freshman year. And, uh, you know, he knew a lot about my business all the way down, truth be told, to like the numbers of it, uh, the growth pattern. I mean, he knew a lot about it. He was our first, uh, one of our first clients outside of athletes. Like, he signed to us when we were B-Win Sports. Wow. And he was an EDM artist, right? Yeah. Um, so he knew quite a bit about the business, and uh, he says, look, I mean, at the end of the day, you need school to get you to a point to where you can do this in life, and uh, if you put this on hold for three years, what would happen? I said, well, I'd lose it. I'd lose the opportunity. He says, well, then put school on hold, because you won't lose that opportunity, and uh, see what you can do, because he says, you can always go back if it doesn't work, but if you're truly supporting yourself, and you're you know, doing well, and the business is, has an upward trajectory, you, you should explore that a little bit, and so... 
taking that thought and combining it with some of the other advice I had been given. You know, my uncle had told me, he says, look, uh, school's different in this day and age than it was when I was a kid, but stay in school until the exact moment in time that you can no longer do both. And so uh, I was doing some work in Barcelona. I had gotten an opportunity to do some work for a pretty big company uh, over in Barcelona. I had to go, I got a call, this was a Sunday morning, uh, March the 20th of 2019. And uh, I got a call that said, can you be in Barcelona tomorrow? And I, lived, <laughs> and I lived in New York at the time. I said, well, I don't, I don't know about that. And they said, well, well, we'll let you bring a plus one. We'll let you do this, 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 and this. I said, yeah, I'll be there. I've never <laughs> been to Barcelona. So yep. 24 hours later, I'm in Barcelona. I'm in Barcelona for two days, and I come back. And I was only going for two days because on Thursday, I had a composition class that I couldn't miss. And I knew that if I missed it, I was going to flunk out of that <laughs> class. And it was past the withdrawal period. It's yeah. like, I'm taking an F on my transcript if I'm not back in the United States by Wednesday. And it's Monday morning, and I'm on a flight to Barcelona. So sure enough, it's about to come back. They said, wait, can you go to London for three days straight from Barcelona? <laughs> so yeah, I'll go. Sure enough, it's 1.45 in the morning at London. I walk outside of, uh, we're, we're the last people inside Nobu. I'm in the middle of a meeting. And I walk outside, and it's the dean of Fordham's business school calling me. And she says, you know, you missed your fourth composition class. You're taking an F. We're going to have to fail you. I say, hang on, hang on, hang on. I get like my mom and dad on the phone and I'm like, guys, like, what do you advise I, I say or do here? Were they supportive in that moment? Like, did they know you were Barcelona in London? They did, they did know what I was doing. Okay. I was there for work. They knew the whole thing. Um, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they were more so honestly taking the approach of, with the dean of like, look, like he's in the entrepreneurship program here. Like, that's what he's majoring in. He's here for this. We can show you invoices. We can show you whatever you want to prove it. <laughs> it's not like he got up and went to Barcelona yeah. on a whim five hours <laughs> later. No, 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 no. 45 minutes later, I said, I said, I've reached the point where I can't do both, so I'm, I'm going to leave this. And so sure enough, 2 in the morning, on the side of the street in London, that was where I dropped out of school. And that, was wow. and that was about a week after the conversation with Justin. That is incredible. Yeah. So you're in London now. You drop out. Like, Do you instantly have this moment of relief, or what's going through your head in that moment? Is it, are you nervous? Are you, do, you, do you have any regret of, oh, my God, why did I do that? Or what was the byproduct of making that decision? Um, Going back to an, an initial point, I said, you know, you're born with the ability to live in an uncomfortable manner if you're an entrepreneur. And so it, to me, it probably was not nearly what other people looked at it and thought it was. You know, to me, it was, oh, this is real. But nothing more than that. <laughs> like, oh, this is real. Yeah. Time to do what I need to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that. I never looked at it as a big deal because, uh, truth be told, I never wanted to go to college in the first place. My mom cared a lot about me going to school. Uh, she has a PhD, an MBA. Like, she's gone to a lot of school yep. and, and you know and I, and I felt like she's she's been there for me more than anyone else my whole life I wanted to go to school just to honestly appease her that being said I realized I could do that by leaving when I did at that particular moment which I couldn't have done if I had just said no college at the end of high school what I did do though was uh, I was going to go to USC she went to USC she was really excited that I was going to be you know five hour drive from home one hour flight the whole thing <laughs> Uh, six days before you could no longer switch where you were going to go to school, I ate the deposit to USC and I switched to Fordham wow. because I wanted to go, frankly, to an easier school because I didn't want to be so caught up in classes and I wanted to be in New York, not Los Angeles because I thought it'd be better for growing the business. And so all throughout my life, I was making decisions that weren't necessarily uh, agreeable to my mom or to the people mm -hmm. around me, but I still made those decisions based on the lessons they had taught me. Yep. And that was what I would always go back to. I said, mom, I got to be in control of my own life at some point in time. <laughs> you lived yours. Yeah. You're living yours. I got to I got to do my own at some point. So um no, I was I've I've never really been 
scared in my life. Love that. Well, huge shout out to Justin. Yeah. <laughs> that's coming on next. That's how, how, ironic, how ironic is that? So when you think about mentors moving like into your future and building what you do, how do you approach mentorship, right? Because I, I think when I think about the people in my life that have brought value to me, it's, it's almost by accident in a sense, right? Like it's situational. Right? So for you, how do you think about mentorship in different uh, genres of your life? I, I only really have one genre of my life. You know, <laughs> it, it really, like this whole, this, this business thing, if you will, that every entrepreneur does, that is your life. So for yep. example, uh, you're not really any older than me, but we've had conversations that in essence have given me mentorship. You've taught me something in those moments, right? I appreciate it. Uh, Kieran has taught me something in, in a conversation that we had 30 minutes ago, right? So part of the lifestyle that I live comes with constant mentorship and now, because Enclave has gotten to a certain level, the kinds of people who we do business with are at the level that I'm learning from all of them. Yeah. I'm oftentimes the dumbest person in the room, and I love that because I'm 21. And that won't be the case when I'm 45 and I've spent 24 years in rooms with people that are smarter than me. Um, and uh, I, I would say that's, that's what mentorship is to me, for sure. Love that. I, I want to transition into just day-to-day -day operations and, and culture building, right? I, I know you said that's something that's important to you. How have you instilled culture in your organization and how do you continue to maintain that over time? So I'm gonna explain. And, and what does culture even mean to you? Sure, so <laughs> uh, I'm gonna explain to you the way that my uncle explained to me because I think it's one of the most single, most valuable pieces of information that's ever been shared with me. If people are paid fairly to do a job, then for the most part, as long as they're living comfortably and everything like that, the money becomes secondary. People's self-esteem is the most important thing. And so as an enterprise, if you can attach someone's self-esteem to their ability uh, to work and be productive and have individual successes, then you've done what every CEO should dream of doing. And so we've put a few different things in place to foster that kind of uh, situation. Like I'll give you an example. Uh, we have an unlimited days off policy at my office. So and paid, unlimited paid days off. So when I come into the office every morning and I look around and I see all the people there, I know that they chose to be there. Not because it's their job, but because they wanted to be a part of what we're doing that day. Uh, and it's really, it's really, it's a nice thing because you look at 2020, uh, in 18 people, the person who missed the most amount of days was six. That was wow. it. But we have an unlimited paid days off policy because if you're 23 years old and your 85-year-old grandparents come to town, and it's a Thursday or it's a Friday, and your family's renting a boat on Lake Mead, and you guys are all gonna go out, and you're gonna miss that experience with your 85-year-old grandparents because you gotta work for this business. That's not what this business is here for. This business is here to be uh, one of the main things in your life that you devote your time, attention, and care to. And if there's a day where that's not how you wanna best spend your day, then don't. And that's totally okay with us. And uh, that, that's just one example. We have a million different things I like love this. That. But, 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 but to that point, though, I mean, you've got to look at it. Like, most companies have to offer 10 paid days off, and then most people abuse the sick days. We offer unlimited paid days off, and people don't even use as many as they would get working <laughs> anywhere else because we make it a fun place to come into. We make it fun. It's a desk job, maybe, but, you know, you've got so much freedom and flexibility. You want to work from home? Fine, work from home. No one does because they want to be in the office, you know, and it's a... Uh, Constantly, I mean, just to put in perspective, to give you some numbers here, I mean, we, we budget about $15,000 a year per employee to culture. And what that means is uh, 
essentially we're talking about th you know 20 30 percent or probably talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars a year is being spent on making the culture fun on something as simple as having TVs in the office all the way to uh, every Memorial Day I take the entire staff who's been with us more than 12 months on a trip all expenses paid to the Bahamas um, on the weekend of September 27th that's our annual anniversary uh, same thing applies and I take all the people uh, this past year we did a we did a lake trip um, the year before that we went to LA we've done Bahamas we've done a number we've done New York we've done Miami uh, and we make it fun because it's the, it, you know if it's just my business and it's my vision and and I'm just paying these people to kind of do it. Well, then you just then then it's just an enterprise that's one person with 28 assistants because there's too much to do, and that's not <laughs> and that's not what yeah. Enclave's about. And so uh, that's what culture is. It's building something like that, you know. Very well said. I, I love that approach to it, and, and I think just the way you explained that, I think anyone listening can learn something from. And I explain it the way that he explained it to me, <laughs> like almost verbatim. Yeah, no, I, I can tell. <laughs> I can tell. Like very strategic and it. It's impactful, so I appreciate you for sharing that. When you think about your future as Blake Wynn, who you want to be, who you want to become, right? We're both 21 years old, young guys in the grand scheme of things. What is your ultimate goal in life? Maybe you don't know that yet. Maybe it comes to you and it's different every day. But when you think about the future, what excites you and who do you want to become? I would like to be someone that people are proud to know. And I think that that's a pretty common answer, and there's the whole legacy answer and all that. And, I, and, and look, I, ultimately, a legacy is a byproduct of what you do. What mark do you actually leave, and that'll determine your legacy. But there's people who I'm proud to know who they might have 48 followers on Instagram. <laughs> they're just they're good people. They have the, their mind is in the right place. Their heart uh, is full of the best interests for everyone. And that's what I would like to be known as. You know, like... There's so much of my day where I will spend it doing favors for people who are outside of the Enclave and Key brand, favors that have no impact on our business, but I'll do them because I want to be that guy that if, if your back's against the wall, I know it's trouble or something like that, I don't mean that, but if your back's against the wall or you got a killer idea and you just don't know where to go or you, know, you, need, to, you need to be connected to someone that you know that I know that you otherwise could never get to. I want to be that guy who says, yeah, here's a group text. Not that guy that's like, well, that's my relationship. That's mine. <laughs> you know? And there's a lot of people like that. Yeah. And so uh, to me, I want to be known uh, as one of those people who you can just go to. And when you're done talking to them, you're just going to say, wow, that was, a good, that was a good encounter. That made my day better. That's really all I'd like. Love that. Very cool. Well, I have a couple more questions before we wrap, wrap up here, Blake. I want to talk about sports. Um, when you're, working, when you're working with athletes in, in the day-to-day in the -day operations, like where do you tend to spend your time working with these athletes? Because I know right, I'll, I'll see you on Instagram. You're on the fields at the Chargers games, and you're, you're engaging with the players. Like that is a, a type of energy and, and behavior that is very special to who you are based on what I know about you. But how do you spend your days with the players, nurturing the relationships, and overall making sure that they are happy as clients, but also friends and people that you respect? You know, it's interesting, like, these players are the same as me besides they're a lot more physically gifted. <laughs> I mean, but, but so hear me out here. I'm about to turn 22 years old. Our average client's probably 26. Okay, so there's a couple years apart, but basically we're at the same point in life. Um, we're into the same things. Sneakers is a very common denominator between athletes and myself. Uh, I like cards, I like art, I'm into real estate, I'm into all these different things, and they're the same things that they're into. Um, you know, I was sharing with you before this, like, I'm on a bowling league team on Wednesday nights with Henry <laughs> Ruggs from the Raiders. It's like we're into the same things, so we become very, very good friends. And the fact that we can do business together 
becomes icing on the top for them. And truth be told, that's how it should feel because I'm not the one that's brokering every last detail. I'm not the one sending them their content briefings when they got to do a deal, right? That's my team. So if they have a real strong relationship with me and let's just say they don't even care about the deal, they just don't want to let me down, <laughs> then the deal that they do for the company that they're essentially sold to is going to be that much better. And so my job in building these relationships is to really strengthen the end product that Enclave is here to serve to a, to a particular company. Now, on a personal level, uh, there's nothing I could have dreamed of more than to do what I do right now. As a, as a young kid, the only reason I even knew about eBay was, was because I used to buy and sell football cards on there for a dollar, two dollars at a time. It was not a business. I've lost a lot of money. <laughs> well, you know, for a nine or ten year old, I probably lost, you know, my mom would give me 20 bucks a week. And I would get to go to Target or Walmart at the time, buy some cards. I could o rip them open, and then I would take a couple of nice ones. I'd sell them on eBay just so I could get, you know, an extra $15 that <laughs> week. So I was kind of just yeah. burning burning cash 25% of the time. Um, but now the people who I grew up idolizing are some of my best friends. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a unique feeling because, you know, I am only 21, so there is still that 11-year-old inside of me that's not that far removed from today that says, do you believe this? <laughs> like, do you believe that this is actually like what you do on a daily basis? The Chargers yeah. are a client of yours. You know, these players who, whose autographs go for $1,000 and you know that when you were 10 years old, you would have spent that $1,000 <laughs> on those autographs because I did do it. LaDainian yeah. Tomlinson, I probably spent uh, every birthday present. Can I have LaDainian Tomlinson? That's, yeah. all I, that's all I want. So I got, you know, signed helmets, signed photos, signed this, signed this. My parents over five years probably spent $1,500 on LaDainian Tomlinson autographs yeah. to me. Now, I see him every other week, and it's the coolest thing. Yep. That is so cool to know, and, and just to, to understand it. When you say, like, you still can't believe what you do, like, I, I completely resonate with that, right, when it comes to the interviews and the people and just the experiences, and I think that's something that if you can live in that feeling for an extended period of time, you will be really truthfully fulfilled. So last question before we wrap up here, Blake. I know we're both young, 21 years old, but if you were to go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice, what would that be and why? Just keep doing it. It'll get there. You know, I mean, I'll tell you, there's a great, uh, there's a, I think there's a really easy way to explain this, and I call it the dark side of ambition. Every entrepreneur is so ambitious that what they end up doing becomes this thing that tens, of, tens to millions of people rally around, right? And uh, they're often asked about, why does this work, and how do you build this, and how do you do this? But there's a dark side of ambition that's almost never talked about, which is the when you're sitting there and your significant other wants to break up with you because you haven't spent time talking to them because you've been so focused on your business, or when you're still in school and your grades are suffering because you're all in on your business, <laughs> or when you miss out on parties or events or, or experiences and all these things, those are things that I don't place the burden of doing that on my employees, which is why we have that policy. But I do place that burden on myself, and I would call that the dark side of ambition because without those things, you can't stay grounded enough as an entrepreneur to even allow 20 or 30 people to be financially dependent on you and to, and, and to be willing to rally around, uh, you know, the ideas and things that you want to do. And so uh, for me, I would say, you know, I had a lot of those moments where it does seem easy, easier to quit than to keep going. And I'm lucky that I didn't, but I would, I would say tenfold because, you know, every day that goes by, you think about what you want to do in five years, but you don't know that it'll come. You just, <laughs> you, you just really, really hope and you're willing to work relentlessly to try to get there. Um, and I would have told myself, like, no, it'll work out. Just stick with it. Because there were times where it was uh, dark, if you will. Absolutely. 
Well, Blake, I just want to say thank you so much for, for coming on the Casey Adams show today. I really appreciate it. And for everyone listening make sure or watching, make sure you go follow Blake, check out what he has built, and stay up to date with what he has going on. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you.